0: Howdy. This is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com.
1: Today's guest is Jim Rutt. I'm Jared Jaynes, the producer of the Jim Rutt Show, and I'm taking over the hosting privileges momentarily, mostly because we're gonna be talking just about the Jim Rutt show, and it's always awkward talking to yourself, so so I thought I'd lend Jim a hand here. We also have an announcement that probably is where we should this best place to start. Jim, did you wanna kind of talk about what's in store for the show um, and what's going to be changing in the the immediate future?
0: Uh, Yeah, thanks, Jared. This is a great opportunity to reflect on a little over two years' experience with the Jim Rutt Show. And Jared has been my trusty producer for most of that time. And, you know, if you like the sound quality and the show notes and the website and all that, Jared and his team have done a wonderful job of taking care of us here on the Jim Rutt Show. So, yeah, the announcement after doing about 185 episodes over the last two years, something like that. I've decided to ramp back the rate. I kept doing more and more and more because there's just so many interesting people and so many interesting books and so many interesting articles and papers to read that by 2021, I was doing two to three episodes a week. One week I had six scheduled, which I rescheduled one. The other one had to be canceled for various reasons. So I ended up doing four. That was nuts and I've got some other projects that I need to work on. And so I've decided to continue the podcast, but to ramp the rate down. And so instead of two or three a week, I'm aiming for one or two, or very occasionally three per month. And we've got some great guests uh, scheduled. Next month, we have Robin Dunbar of the famous Dunbar number signed up and have a great chat with him. In September, we're doing a podcast with Heather Haying and her very interesting book, with uh, written with her husband, who's also been on the show a number of times, Brett Weinstein, on evolutionary psychology and evolution in general and how it impacts culture and stuff. That's going to be very interesting. We're going to do another episode later this week with Rob Tursick, who's been a guest on before, and we talked about his book. But this time, we're going to focus narrowly on his very exciting ideas about the future of education. This is some radical stuff. Mm. And let's see, in October, I have John Verveke on the books. We're gonna do three episodes, I believe. I think it could take three episodes. I'm currently working my way through the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, this 50-hour video series, found it very interesting. And I've been writing copious notes. This is completely new for me. I've never tried to base a podcast and even more a podcast cluster of episodes around video rather than the written word. I'm a written word kind of guy. So I've developed a, a workflow with Rome Research, and I found a good source of transcripts that were already done by somebody, and so I cut and paste from them. I write notes as I'm listening. I stop and go. It's So it's uh, something new for me. that's something looking forward. And then in, I believe, November, we will have Antonio Damasio, the uh, very well-known Cognitive Scientists, whose newest book will be published in uh, late October on his newest theories on the fundamental nature of consciousnesses. Regular listeners to the show know one of my favorite topics. So uh, we're not ending the podcast, but we're cutting the rate down very substantially. So if you're not hearing the dings on your uh, podcast app two or three times a week, it's not broken. I haven't died, but we're just reducing the flow.
1: <laughs> and those are just the, the full episodes that you have planned, right?
0: Correct. And from time to time, I'll slip one current episode, a shorter, more informal episode in as, you know, things strike my fancy or not, right? All depends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, The Currents are, uh, I was onboarding one of the, the new editors, and they're asking me about the, the cadence for The Currents, and I was like, well, it's, it's completely up to Jim's own fancies and, and whims, so yeah, it's completely unpredictable. They're, they're just uh, surprises that, that pop up in the queue, so <laughs> that's the way I think of The Currents.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I see an article, I uh, you know, see a uh, talking head on TV, even, I reached out and found them and going, hey i'd like to be on a podcast and you know surprising number of people say yes and that's where occurrence comes from
1: yeah I mean I always you know I've done some of my own podcasts in the past and I think my favorite thing about them is just that it gives you an excuse to talk to people and they say yes all the time that's like the, the the unfair advantage of, of networking and and just having interesting conversations with people
0: yeah no doubt about it one of the really the wonderful benefits and one of the things I've certainly uh, enjoyed a whole lot I love talking to people always have and I've uh, been able to talk to you know, all kinds of interesting people who I never would have run across in my uh, my real life, so called.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, and now that we have the the announcement out of the way, I, I thought reflecting on the the show a little bit from a broad perspective would be fun. Does that uh, that motivation of being able to to have fun conversations is that is that tie directly into you know kind of why you started the thing for, to the begin with?
0: Uh, More or less. I can tell you the real origin story, like any good comic book. Yeah, the superhero has to have an origin story. (laughs) The Jim Rutt Show actually started around the dinner table, the Christmas dinner table. I think it was actually between Christmas and New Year's. My daughter and her husband were down and some other folks were uh, just sort of chatting about the year. And it was late 2018. And I was spent 2018 writing a number of essays on Medium. You can check them out, Jim Rutt on Medium. Um, things like liquid democracy. Uh, one of my favorite ones I wrote was uh, regaining your cognitive sovereignty about my experiment of getting rid of my uh, smartphone. And I, talk, I describe a lot about the downside of smartphones, quoted a lot of cognitive science research on it, etc. And anyway, I wrote these essays and I were proud of them. They're well done, but man, am I a slow writer. And I just revision, revision, revision. I have some friends that can just knock something out that's good in four hours, you know, For me, say two months is more like it. I was uh, complaining about this. and My daughter in her classic daughterly talking to her dad style says, dad, you may struggle with writing, but you are one of the great talkers of all time, king of (laughs) bullshit. And I go, there's there's something to be said for that. You should have a podcast. You know, of course, I knew what a podcast was, but being a man of the printed word, I really hadn't listened to podcasts too much and but took that. That idea under advisement. So, uh, you know, those who found the Jim Rutt show to be annoying, I blame it on my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually a, a really cool suggestion that she came up with. And I never would have thought of it, never would have done it, I guarantee, you, if it hadn't been for that conversation. And so that that spring, each year in March, I usually try to take stock of my life. I retired from my business career on April 1st, appropriately date. And so uh, I use that as an anniversary to review what I've been doing and you know how do I want to adjust the coming year? And I you know, said, yeah, you know, I think I'm kind of tired of writing essays. And I think I'm going to think about podcasting. And so I dug in, as I always do. I thought of it like a venture. I researched what I could find out about the podcast industry. I looked at the technology. I signed up for some of these online you know, learn how to be a podcaster courses, actually, that were actually fairly interesting and useful. And after about a month, I said, yeah, I can do a podcast. God damn it! And and uh, it doesn't look like it's that hard, right? You know, the, by that point, 2019, the services were essentially off the shelf and inexpensive. Mm-hmm. You know, things like Zencaster, which we use to record the episodes we're using today, Dropbox, where the files can be stored. You know, there's good low cost editing software, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I said, "Let's do it!" And so I, uh, you know, ramped up and. Start sending emails to people I knew or even, even a few I didn't know. And as you said, it is pretty amazing how many people say yes to be on a podcast. <laughs> and uh, so we launched it. I think I recorded my first episode on June 2nd, 2019.
1: Mm. Man, time flies. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, especially you know, being... In a place where you're doing most of your sense making in written form and kind of at its own pace. I know that, you know, committing to the, the schedule that you did with all the guests and and all of the background research and, and reading and things that you do for prep, uh, you know, kind of put you on this kind of really intense intellectual workout regimen. How do you think about like how that impacted your kind of worldview and everything once the the podcast got running?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because, as I've said on the podcast several times over the uh, couple of years, I spend about 10 hours on average per full-length episode. Often read a book. It might take three to six or seven or eight, nine hours, 10 hours sometimes. if it's a really thick, difficult book. And then I often will do side research on the topic so that you know I can challenge the guest or support the guest or point out some things that are related, et cetera. And uh, then I usually spend two hours exactly preparing my show notes for the podcast before we go on the air. So it's a, you know, it is a big time commitment and it has consumed a fairly large amount of my reading budget. I've historically read about 75 books a year and probably in the last Two years, not all my podcasts are about books, but a fair percentage of them are. And I'd say particularly in the last year, I've moved even more towards book-oriented podcasts. A significant majority of my reading bandwidth has been absorbed into reading for podcasts and sort of following the ideas from them. And uh, so Though, of course, I choose the topic, so it's not like, oh, yeah, the teacher made me read uh, (laughs) Rise and Fall of the Third Reich or something, and goddammit, I had to struggle my way through it, so I had to choose them. But on the other hand, they had a different trajectory than my natural reading would. And it's hard to describe exactly what the difference is, but it is different. So it did move my reading trajectory in a somewhat different direction, more towards nonfiction, kind of hardcore stuff. Historically, I read about half fiction, half nonfiction. Speaking of which, it's interesting going back. uh, When I wrote the original prospectus for the show, I had two categories on the topics list that I never actually got to. One was literary fiction. I read a lot of literary fiction, like it a lot. But once I started doing podcasts, uh, you know, the first few were on more technical or social change-oriented topics. Uh, One happened to be with a fiction writer, but really more of a social change guy, Corey Doctorow, one of my early podcasts. And a good one, by the way. And I said, you know, I'm not sure what the hell I talk with, to a, a literary novelist about, right? It doesn't <laughs> really seem to be, be what I do. So I dropped that from the list. The other one I had early on the list was the Americana music area, an area my wife and I both enjoy a lot. i been to many, many uh, shows over the years. and I thought it would be a good excuse, as we were saying, to reach out to these people and talk to them, some of my musical heroes. But then I said, what the hell am I want to talk to Robert Earl Keane about? I love his music, but, <laughs> you know, or Jerry Jeff Walker or somebody like that. And I go, huh, yeah, it doesn't really seem like what, what I do. So I ended up not doing any uh, Americana music until uh, one of my last episodes with Harvey Reed was interesting. Mm-hmm. A really phenomenal musician, though I reached out to him after looking at his book. And his book is really uh, sort of a deep, personal, philosophical exploration of the nature of, you know, what he calls troubadour music, singer-songwriter who pres- provides his own accompaniment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it was more about his ideas than it was about the music. So it fit in with uh, what I'd been doing. So so my my reading definitely changed, but not in a you know crazy way. These are books that I might have read or piles of papers I might have read, but probably wouldn't have, uh, at least maybe two-thirds of them, if I had happened to be on this mission. Yeah
1: before the podcast did you were you the person that reads like a bunch of books all at the same time and kind of picks them up, puts them down or is, or you kind of just get, get one done, move on, did it actually change the, the, the whole function or the, the methods in which you would go through books?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I tend to be a one or two book at a time person. Typically, often I'll be working on a, a nonfiction book, and if it's a hard one, you know, you know, difficult conceptual stuff that you have to read fairly slowly, I'll mix it in with fiction, you know, some of the you know trashy detective stories, uh, rereading Lord of the Rings for the 29th time. Uh, you know, I was not a really hard bender of reading for the podcast. I stumbled across a trashy series, uh, one of these post-apocalyptic series called Nuclear Winter. What the hell is the guy's name? Uh, they, they were... Not bad. They were certainly readable.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I feel like there's like a genre that just speaks to me in a way that's really interesting. And and whether it's like the most high art, you know, sophisticated and nuanced take or not, there's still this an enjoyment of being immersed in some an aesthetic of some sort.
0: Yeah, exactly. This you know, the willing suspension of disbelief, as my eleventh grade English teacher, Mrs. Kingsley, always taught us to think about it and said that's the magic of writing. You know, you say, all right, None of the, if you look at a book critically, it's never perfect, right? There's logic flaws in every thriller, which pisses me off. But if it's good writing, the willing suspension of disbelief, Bobby Eckhart, Akart, A-K-A-R-T. Uh, it turns out he's written a, a very large number of post-apocalyptic novels, but there's a five-book series called Nuclear Winter. Now, they're very short. You can read, you know, more than one a day. I think I was reading a like about two a day while I was power climbing my one and a half a day. So that was kind of cotton candy for the mind. I used to love the uh, Spencer series detective stuff till the guy died and didn't know more of those. So I do read from time to time, science fiction, you know, so anyway, I tend to be a two book, a two book at a time person or just one, but I'm not a person who's reading five or six books simultaneously. And I will say that when I do it for the podcast, I, because I had deadlines, right? I had people booked for specific dates. And I'll confess, sometimes I was finishing the book the morning of the podcast. And so I had to, at times, uh, just really buckle down and focus, focus, focus on uh, getting the books done. I like to get them done two or three days in advance. And most of the time I did, so I could reflect a little bit. And I could do my notes the day prior to the podcast and then review the notes the morning of. That was optimal. But as we know, optimal and reality aren't always the same all the
1: time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny too. You're you're mentioning reading the post-apocalyptic stuff, which thematically seems to be pretty resonant with a lot of the collapse scenarios and things that are a common theme on the the podcast. Are there any interesting connections there, or 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 <laughs> or is this just kind of a, a happy coincidence?
0: Uh, it's probably not a happy, it's not a total not totally random. I'll say that. And I've always been interested in discontinuous change. you know I like the uh, thrillers of you know, long before I was thinking about game b or anything else like that. you know I like that kind of stuff. But I suppose i i I'd like to read these things because it highlights the the large number of different ways in which uh, advanced civilization could collapse. Mm-hmm. and when we talk about collapse, one of the things I'd like to say again and again and again are being prepared, being a you know, pr- a prepper as people would say uh, is it's sort of meaningless to be a prepper or to worry too much about, think about even collapse, but rather you need to think about specific trajectories, specific things that happen or could happen. And, uh, you know, and I call it a bundle of trajectories. And so the more of those things you get exposed to, the more you're thinking about possible ways our society could collapse, how we could prevent that. And and even if we don't fully prevent it, how we could make a a more uh, speedy recovery uh, is useful. So I encourage people to read post-apocalyptic literature, at least the stuff that's realistic scenarios. I don't read at all, you know, zombie apocalypses or stuff like
1: that.
0: <laughs> but, you know, give me a good pandemic apocalypse it's more or less realistic. You know, EMP pulses, you know, massive earthquakes, eruption of the Yellowstone caldera, that's always a good one. Or in the case of Bobby Eckhart, it was a limited nuclear war which triggered a uh, rather severe nuclear winter. Mm. You know, all possible scenarios that we'd yeah. to be thinking about and things that we should all be working as citizens to reduce the probability or to the degree that we can't reduce the probability like a solar, massive solar flare, that we build robustness and resilience into things like our electrical grid so that we can get you know, our civilization rebooted again and minimize the amount of loss.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, the, the one of the common themes that I hear in a lot of those scenarios, too, is, you know, unlike the zombie apocalypse, they are ways of talking about how humans organize when the the slate has been kind of cleaned or reset in some fundamental way. And yeah, so it's kind of that. I see it as kind of very much in a similar vein as the kind of first principles, bottom-up approach of, of Game B, even when it comes to
0: community organization and things. Yeah, I will confess the writers tend not to explore that as much as I'd like them to I might, it'd be fun to write one, right? Because it's, it's almost always the charismatic older male, right? Who tells everybody what to do. And if they don't, they die. Right. And, you know, it's really a very game a perspective. Unfortunately, there's very little thinking about, all right, how would a team of survivors really work in a non-hierarchical collaborative and cooperative fashion to maximize their probability of one first surviving and then two rebooting. And i can't recall really seeing much of that in the uh, post-apocalyptic literature. Yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe something the the sci-fi seems to, to be often about, <laughs> the, the reorganization, thinking of, of society in a different way.
0: Yeah, Ursula Le Guin is a classic one who did you know, some beautiful writing back in the day on, on things like that. And of course, one of my old favorites. It's a, it's a weird hybrid. Uh, Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land and Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, I always say, you know, it's amazing that the same guy wrote both of those two books. You know, one, the kind of the literary, at least back in my day, back in the 60s and 70s, the uh, Moon is a Heart's Mistress was the uh, libertarian favorite, and uh, Stranger in a Strange Land was the hippie favorite. How could he have written the favorite novels of the libertarians and the hippies? But he did.
1: Ooh, yeah, that's maybe the, the a mark of a, of a real thinker uh, when, when you can be seen as, <laughs> you know, on, on two poles, you know, very distant from one side or another. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Well, and this is interesting. I I didn't think we'd go here, but you know, this, this idea of fiction and just the, the role of fiction and thinking about you know, what's going on with today's culture and stuff like that? I feel like there's not a lot of conversations around that. Is that at least in the, the kind of game B sense making whatever web, it's, it doesn't seem like a really common thing these days do you, know, you think we could could benefit from from looking for at some towards some fiction to, to be a little bit more imaginative
0: or, or? yeah, I, I think so. I've always read fiction and I've always thought it had a good influence on opening your perspectives. What fiction did I read recently? A quality fiction. The week before last, I read War and Peace, Tolstoy's War and Peace, right? 1,100 pages of stuff. And there were a lot of ideas in there that caused one to think about how one would design a society or what are the attributes of a society that help make it work and not work. And of course, uh, what he was drawing was a whole series of things that don't work or are bad, you know, like the very hierarchical, semi-feudal state that Russia was in at the time, which the time of the novel was 1805 through 1820, approximately. And then you had the uh, military dictatorship of Napoleon on the other side as the other alternative. And so it was a sort of an exploration of social operating systems and their result in constant warfare that were good object lessons on things that one would not want in a good social operating system. Uh, but again, the writing was beautiful. You know, just one of these classics that the joke about it is everybody talks about it, but nobody reads it. And I'd suggest it's actually worth reading. And, it's, and uh, Tolstoy is a very easy writer, short sentences, short paragraphs, short chapters, very clear. It was actually very enjoyable. I blasted right through it just as if it were, you know, some you know, good piece of genre writing. But unfortunately, You know, when you talk about fiction in general, you know, I'm old enough to remember when fiction writers were some of the more famous people in our society, right? Think about John Updike, Saul Bellow, uh, Ernest Hemingway even was alive when I was a little kid, and many others. And these were people who were literally featured in People magazine, right? Yeah. (laughs) And before that, it was even more so back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, you know, Theodore Dreiser and Thomas Wolfe and William Faulkner. I mean, these were... Top tier celebrities, essentially. I can't think of any novelist of the serious literary sort that you ask a person on the sidewalk, uh, you'd have more than one chance in a hundred they ever heard of. Yeah,
1: yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it seems to be. Well, we have, we, we have our, our CEOs and, and entrepreneurs and TikTok stars or something. This is what replaced our, our fictional visionaries. <laughs>
0: And we have the genre people, I mean, you know, people know the James Patterson's of the world, etc. But they, uh, you know, can, could you even name a top uh, literary uh, novelist today? When in you know 1960s, such people were, you know, literally known by, you know, even my uh, parents, uh, working class folks, they did read books, but you know, they certainly knew who uh, Hemingway was and Faulkner and people like that. That would certainly not be the case today. And, of course, it's a, lot, it's a lot like movie making. You know, movies now also collapsed to, yes, there are still good indie movies being made. If you've got streaming services, you can find them. But the stuff that's in the movie theaters is just comic book shit, basically,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I guess there must be a market for it because they keep on making it and they ain't cheap. It's high production values. But, you know, in terms of, you know, are there famous directors like Billy Wilde, like there was in the day, or John Ford? Yeah, not so much,
1: right? Yeah, it seems there are a lot fewer and far between. Yeah, maybe partially it's just like the, you know, the the fractured nature the fractal nature of culture these days is that you know, broad appeal is that much more of a rare thing you know the first thing that I could think of is like if there's anybody right now from a filmmaking perspective that might fall into that category would be and maybe this isn't broad just because I'm a nerd it would be uh, Denis Villeneuve who's about to come out with Dune and, and did uh, Blade Runner and things but yeah not not a not not a uh, a huge kind of cultural agreement around that, I bet. I bet if I brought up that name, a lot of people would not have no idea who, who the hell I was talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm one of them, right? I certainly know Dune. I know Blade Runner. Yeah. But I thought Ridley Scott did
1: Blade Runner. He did, yeah. Scott did the the original Blade Runner. Villeneuve did the so he just did that remake, Blade Runner 2049 or whatever. I, um, I and Arrival. Arrival. That was that, you know, as you were talking about fiction writers uh, that I, I feel like should have some of the the references. Uh, Ted Chang. Have you have you read any of? His oh story? yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, because yeah. that's what the Arrival was based off of one of his short stories. And yeah, that was that that was actually something like new and interesting and and yeah. You know, but now we're going back to Dune, so <laughs> just uh, repurposing things, uh, repurposing culture. It seems to be the the moment we're in right now.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, and maybe in the Game B world, we can get back towards, you know, interesting and deep art, right? Of course, like people say, all oh, right, just a goddamn old boomer, right? I, go, uh, I just finished watching a very interesting documentary uh, series on Apple TV called 1971, the year music changed everything. And eight episodes some amazing footage. It's worth it for the footage alone. But, uh, you know, music was, you know, seriously part of building the counterculture at that time, yeah. which was ne- reaching its peak. And, you know, these were grungy people. None of them were good looking and smooth, right, with a few exceptions. But they were people who were taking their music and their impact on the world seriously. You know, now it's all drum machines and, yada 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 yada, and you know, Beautiful people <laughs> with fancy haircuts and uh, tight clothes and you know gym-tuned legs and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like like the Empire struck back. The, you know, the music scene was radical and I mean literally countercultural in a serious way. And now it's entire it seems as far as I can tell sure there must be some indie corners like Americana and certain areas of hip hop etc. But in general, what we think of as pop music today is sort of banal commercial shit driven by the almighty dollar.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a weird world, but yeah, it, it, other strange thing at the same time is that to your point, there are a bunch of indie places that are you know in, in culture in all of the different artistic ventures, whether it's music or or movies and things like that, and and because of the accessibility and and connected nature, you know, there's a lot of indie artists who make a living off of it. You know, they're not famous, they're not pop stars and they're not uh, cultural icons or things like that but yeah I think there's probably a, a more a broader diversity of independent creators and, and artists and things like that who are able to make a living uh, with a, a modest audience of some sort but you got to dig to find them and kind of get really go dirt deep down the the, the cultural the subcultural rabbit holes to, to find them it seems like
0: yeah yeah and in some sense that's a good, a good thing uh, though musicians have been heavily hard hit by the the changes in the world there used to be a you know thousands of, of musicians who could make a living touring and selling CDs or albums before that. Mm-hmm. You know, now there's really no market for CDs. The amount of money from streaming services and downloads from you know iTunes or something is a sixth or a tenth of uh, typically what it was when people were selling CDs. And, so, and I know a lot of musicians actually and they all uh, lament the fact that uh, their their main ways of making a living were gutted by the uh, electronic revolution. Though I suppose there's uh, on the flip side, it's now costs almost nothing to produce your own records or your own uh, tune. And so if you can figure out how to zeitgeist surf and find a market, you know you you no longer need a studio contract and thousand dollar an hour studio time and pressing five thousand copies and you know all that sort of stuff. And you can literally cut a uh, production quality track yourself if you're willing to spend a little time on learning the tools. So. It's probably a, a you know a different world, but it's much more fragmented and, and such. Oh
1: yeah, it's a lot more chaotic, that's for sure. Yeah,
0: and it says and it's, you know get actually talk about what the world needs better curation. You know, I would love to be able to find really good music, for instance, very contemporary music. I mean, yes, yeah, so I have my genres which I can I know all the players in or most of them, but there must be genres even I don't even know about. But how would I know about that? Right, it used to be you'd read Rolling Stone and you're to hear about the new genres, but. I'm sure they're not in Rolling Stone anymore.
1: Yeah, it's yeah you know, niche blogs and Twitter profiles. And, and yeah, it's, it seems it's, I, I've like dipped my toe in some of the the indie music scenes and try and keep up to to listen to new stuff. And it's hard, though. It's, it takes a lot of deliberate effort. There's not a, not a lot of ready-made
0: curation, that's for sure. Sound like there's a market there, you know, sort of a, I don't know what I'm trying to think about here. Something like the old Life magazine, right? They were the curators of... 1962, you know, of course, there was so much less of everything that they perhaps could do it. And the Overton window, you know, the level of, of ideas that people were considering in 1962 was extremely narrow, unlike today, where ideas are from one extreme to another in multiple dimensions. But man, hey, you uh, young entrepreneurs out there, think about it. A <laughs> sampler, a sampler, Whole Earth Review is another example, a sampler of Ultra high quality stuff from the fringes. Mm, yeah, that'd be good. That would be. It's eh, not a bad idea.
1: Well, interestingly, I, I kind of think that like this this uh, modern thing of the the influencer, the internet influencer, or something. You know, these individual personalities end up kind of putting their stamp of approval on certain you know, fashion and 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 music and other trends and things like that, where they kind of probably do act like a, a, a subtle form of curation, but it's it's just like utterly personalized to, to yeah you know, this is what i like as opposed to pulling in a broader perspective
0: that's a good point the uh, the role of the internet influencer uh, i read something rather scary that apparently the uh, uh, number 2 job after a medical doctor uh, when you ask a 14 year old what they want to be when they grow up is uh, internet influencer <laughs> yeah ah! <laughs> it's understandable. I mean, you have a lot of cultural power and if you're at the top, presumably you make a pile of money. Right. And you sit around in your jammies and just do your thing. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think the, the real interesting, I mean, there's always there's always uh, people who figure out how to game the system, and, and just the only thing they do is is be an influencer, which is such an absurd kind of thing.
0: And then they get paid to be an influencer. Exactly. And product placements, and that shit ought to be illegal. I don't know, probably not illegal, but it's really immoral. It's like pollution of the meme space.
1: Yeah, they they just need like a you know they need like a scarlet letter on them like <laughs> this person is is just just a, a product, but uh, but yeah, the interesting influencers I think are always the ones who who are have done something. Uh, well and, and, and really mastered some sort of domain or, or expression or art or something like that. And, and uh, yeah, I think you got to keep it a little bit more real in some sense, not, not so sold out.
0: <laughs> well, I guess us, uh, you know, kind of niche podcasters or internet influences in our, in our own little way. I mean, my guests have told me that uh, appearing on my show, I've sold a fair number of books for them, more so, you know, many more so than, you know, going to on uh, bookstore tours and stuff like that. So uh, we're influencers our own little uh, narrow way, but uh, I don't think either of us are going to have seven million followers on uh, TikTok anytime soon.
1: Oh God, that, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't want it if I could have it. <laughs> uh. I did have a, a couple other things that I, I wanted to, to jump into. One of them, you know, just kind of reflecting broadly on the podcast, and um, you know, this could be you know very specific about episodes or guests or you know, just general themes or things that, you know, what, what, what kind of stands out for you when you think about the, the podcast over the past 190 episodes or whatever it was? Yeah. You know, what's the, the, the thing that's the most, maybe the most pride or most interest or, or, you know, just most, most passion that comes up when you think about that? Well, in terms of
0: pride, uh, passion, the fact that I stuck with the uh, theme of the podcast, real thinking about deep ideas, I really do think we, we were able to deliver on that. There are, of course, a few exceptions, but most of the uh, conversations were really pretty deep. I really got into it with people in a positive way. And again, one of the decisions I made on the fly as we go is to mostly keep it positive, did not in, invite guests on for the purposes of arguing with them. Even when I uh, brought people on that I knew I would be arguing with them, we established some guidelines in advance to minimize the arguments, keep it on the upbeat, but we went deep. And uh, again, many of the guests told me you know, offline afterwards that, wow, that was really a deep foray. And some of the scientists even said, made me think about new things in my research program. And so I, I think we did achieve that of uh, not being superficial yeah. and trying to engage the material as intensely as I could. Some areas I knew more about and or had more interest in and could engage more intensely, and some less, but I felt very good that I didn't fake it and that I really got down to it. You know, another interesting thing is how it happened to fall out into the categories that we talked about. You know, originally I had, you know, I think, technology, science, literary fiction, and American music. Well, it turned out fiction and American music mostly went out the window, and science and technology kind of got more much more emphasis. And then the third one that came in was uh, what, I, what I guess I would call radical social change. And mm-hmm. uh, those have turned out to be many of the most interesting episodes and certainly had the highest listenership. Things in the Game B space in uh, met, uh, political metamodernism, uh, some of the more innovative projects in the blockchain world, regenerative ecology. We had a number of people from the regenerative ecology world on, uh, you know, sort of how are we going to save the world from our own madness? I think that ended up actually probably being my number one category, though I still have lots of artificial intelligence stuff, a lot of complexity science people from the Santa Fe Institute and Jason Spaces. But yeah, that that was also interesting how how those sort of three topics, science, technology, and radical social change became the really three foci. And I tried to tie some lines between them, which I I think I was at least somewhat successful at doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Well, and it's interesting when you were earlier, you talked about how you're a good talker. Your daughter said you're a good talker. You should do this podcast. I was thinking, I was like, well, talking is one thing, but, you know. When things are working, when I'm listening to an episode where where you actually are kind of resonating with the person and appreciating each other's experience or worldviews and things like that and doing some actual exploration, I think it would fall into like that category that Tyson Yonka-Porta would put as like, it's a yarn, you know, like you, you gotta kind of see this kind of organic thing develop, which is this, this conversation, this exploration. And, you know, to your point on, on, you know, some of the scientists and things and people that came on that had kind of very specific uh, areas of, of expertise i feel like those kind of conversations like of genuine exploration and and curiosity and and appreciation too and kind of kindness like right like the moment that you're attacking somebody is the moment that everybody's going to start getting defensive you know that the, the yarn becomes a, a knot a, 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 a nest a rat's nest of, of tangled uh messes so yeah i don't know I, I, just as, a, as an outside observer i think that disposition that curiosity and, and kindness is is kind of like essential to having really interesting conversations and exploring new topics because people have to feel like they're not having to defend something or something like that
0: yeah like well, i think you caught that because that was certainly my intent and i can't think of any you know harsh arguments that i got into with anybody uh, and in fact a few people i had that were you know had some controversy or some shit in their past or whatever i Told them right up front in the email, you know, conversation before they agreed to come on. I don't play gotcha. I'm not interested in this, that, or the other thing somebody might play gotcha with. I'm here to talk about your your ideas and their implications, and people need yeah. to appreciate that. Oh, yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned Tyson Yunkaporta. He was certainly one of my favorites. I, mean, I know we're not supposed to love one child more than any other, right? <laughs> they at all every single episode. I'm proud of not, not a single bummer in the list, but my four. Four or five uh, conversations with Tyson Yunker Porter are, are way up there among some of my favorite shows. Yeah, and, me too. Uh, what an interesting person he is in his book Sand Talk. If you haven't read Sand Talk, people, Jim tells you go read Sand Talk by Tyson Yunker Porter.
1: <laughs> yeah, and talking about like novel exploration, the the two of you, uh, you know, him coming from this kind of very natural. Relationship with with the environment and culture and and spirituality and all of this stuff that he's bringing into there, but but him being able to use technical language and make some correlations to the complexity science and things like that, you know that the 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 difference between you two and and your your kind of genuine your your actual perspectives is what made that conversation so interesting and and yeah and it wasn't a it wasn't a fight that you guys weren't it wasn't science versus you know indigenous wisdom it was it was you know how are they actually in relationship and how do they relate to each other so you know, those are yeah, those are some of my favorites of, of the, you know, the first thing that came to my mind uh, when I was thinking about all the episodes that really stood out, you know, it was Tyson's uh, series as well. So we must be on a, a same wavelength.
0: Yeah, they were great. Yeah, and I learned a hell of a lot. It opened my eyes and I think it opened his. In fact, actually, he and I are engaged now in a scientific collaboration where we're going to use, with the permission of the tribal elders, and they had, he went and got that amazingly, we're going to implement, well, actually, I shouldn't say, but it's a evolutionary computation exercise that uses some indigenous ideas mm. and I probably shouldn't give the secret away of the paper, but Tyson <laughs> and I just really hit it off. I don't know. We, you know just Something about it. He and I, we like, we like to joke, hey, we're like brothers from different mothers, right? Totally, totally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I get that vibe. Yeah, it
0: was really, really fun. Another one of my favorite uh, episodes, I'm going to reach out to him soon, see if he's got something new, is Nick Chater's uh, episode on The Mind is Flat. Mm. You know, I'm not sure he was correct. He might be. He might be. But he radically challenges all the conventional wisdom about depth psychology and all this stuff going inside your head and such. And he says yeah, we're way shallower than we like to think. We're basically our memories plus a confabulation machine, and that's it. <laughs> and you know, I've referenced that you know a dozen times at least in other podcasts, challenging you know deep depth psychology perspectives from folks and say, Hey, have you read uh, Nick Jader's book? The mind, the mind is flat. Uh, it might uh, change your, uh, change your thinking a little bit. And as I said, it's still not hundred percent convinced, but he makes a pretty good argument. And so that was, that was so fun because it was so non-conventional wisdom, shall we say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Especially from our modern kind of context in the sense that our, our, Culture seems to be kind of permeated by psychotherapeutic perspective. It's almost like the water that we we swim in. You know, everybody knows a little bit about subconscious and and baggage and trauma and everything. So yeah, it's, it's I, I always appreciate being able to kind of break out of that that frame and be like, wait a second, is this you know, does is this, is this really have to be everywhere? <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh, let's look at it a little bit more fundamentally. Yeah, his his of
0: course is the ultra skeptical perspective. Uh, Yeah, that was on uh, episode 75, Nick Chater, for those of you who want to check it out. Yeah, that was uh, certainly a really fun episode, which has come back again and again. Another one that I just really loved, it was one of my favorite topics, is Doug Irwin on EP 116, where we dug into the Cambrian explosion, which is when essentially all multicellular life, it's a slight overstatement, but almost all the phyla of life, that we know today came into existence in an extraordinarily short period of time, like 5 million years, in this very specific window called the Cambrian Explosion. And that was uh, an amazing conversation because it also allowed us to talk about the nature of evolution, uh, you know, the invention of neurons and all kinds of wild stuff. And 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 Doug Irwin, being a guy from both the Santa Fe Institute and the Smithsonian Institute, is an extraordinarily well-prepared guy to have that discussion with. So that was that was another one that was just really, really
1: good. Yeah, I remember that one vaguely. I, I'm gonna have to, you know, now that we're we're talking through some of these, I'm like, I'm gonna have to go listen to that episode again. I was like, I, 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 a refresher would be really fun. I'm curious. You said that, uh, you know, you and Tyson have, have actually ended up working on projects since the the podcast. Is there any other kind of collaborations or projects and things that have come up uh, that kind of Were first kind of initiated, or maybe even kind of just aided by, or or uh, you know, kind of uh, given a a boost from any of the podcast episodes or guests.
0: Yeah, I've uh, developed a good working relationship with Greg Henry who I did a couple of podcasts with, and we're working on some stuff, Uh, and he's helping me on actually more to the point, and I I'm helping him a little bit on some of the things he's working on. Certainly deepened my relationship with you know some other folks like Simon Dedeo and Max Borders. Mm. Michelle Bowens, actually, uh, Michael Bowen, Ballin. Michelle Bowens and I are working on something together now that I think about it. So yeah, there's been a number of ongoing things that have been initiated and, and I've been advising the Consilience Project, which some of our guests have been associated with. The most uh, well-known Daniel Schmachtenberger, but also Zach Stein and uh, Sam Obergia. All three of them are key contributors to the Consilience Project and I'm an advisor to that project. And so there's another connection. Yeah, so uh, it certainly richened my network of uh, people and projects and stuff. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because so many of the the things that I ended up focusing on, you know, so I, I ended a podcast uh, of my own kind of a little over a year ago now or something like that. But, you know, like I'm, I'm just starting to kind of realize like, man, I really miss all of the connections and, and all of the kind of, you know, unplanned creative stuff and relationships and things like that that had come from it um and, and it was not as obvious when it was running but yeah and and, and i'm glad you're continuing on too and not not to, not completely closing things down
0: yeah and uh, my, going down this list damn rich bartlett is involved with uh, uh, around the edges and some proto b work we're doing I continue to communicate with Mark Burgess on various things. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, been been remarkable. It's actually I hadn't really focused on so much how much it has added to my you know network of uh, collaboration, idea sharing, and project doing. It's been quite a good upgrade.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it has the heart too. Yeah, you know, again, I'm well. I'm the I'm the spiritual guy because I guess I was on an old episode as well uh, talking about spirituality. So so I'm always the the woo woo one in, in the crew. But uh, yeah, I, I always feel like. When I talk about your podcast to people and who have no idea who you are or something like that, you're like, oh, you produced a podcast before? And I kind of give them the, the cliff notes of, of Jim Rutt. And I, and I said that uh, he's a straight shooter with a big heart, you know, like, uh, and, and the big heart is, is, I think, one of the the, the things that's the most endearing and, and maybe doesn't get a ton of attention, but I, I think it's the key to the, the success of the show.
0: I appreciate that. Well, look, I want announcement to make, you know, even though I uh, famously say when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol and <laughs> I call sp- spirituality, the other S-word, guess who started doing a program of meditation three days ago? Oh, shit. <laughs> Yo! As I was uh, working my way through Berbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, it became clear he was about to start talking about mindfulness. And I said, well, you know, I really ought to just listen to him talk, about. I ought to do it, right? And so I asked some folks what they thought was a good specifically mindfulness uh, meditation book pamphlet app and amazingly five out of five said sam harris's waking up Mm -hmm. and and of course i felt comfortable with sam harris him also being a bloody atheist like myself (laughs) and a real cognitive scientist as opposed to uh one who plays a cognitive scientist on tv occasionally myself (laughs) and i said okay probably sam Harris doesn't offend me on principle, and he's not likely to get a bunch of woo-woo shit and divas and celestial spheres and all that kind of (laughs) nonsense. And I downloaded his app, and I'll tell you, it's goddamn good. Three days in a row, boom, boom, boom. I look forward to doing it every morning. And I've signed up for his 28-day startup course and basically... One meditation thing and then a discussion by him about the sort of the meaning and importance of this particular thing and related thing. I anyway, but So I anyway, give it so far an A after three days. Nice, nice. So guess what? I'm going to be a spiritual warrior, folks, out there soon. So watch out. This <laughs> shit really does give you superpowers. I'll be even more super powerful than I was before.
1: <laughs> oh, that's good yeah well I, you know i'm a big fan of of sam uh as well he was he was his book that has the, the s word in it i can't remember what it was called what was it something in spirituality we'll put it in the, the show notes but yeah sam's book was was hugely influential for me going from being a very kind of seeing meditation as a kind of performance enhancement drug you know kind of like a little bit of a Uh, a little boost that I could go uh, do every day for a few minutes to actually getting interested in like, well, what's the deep end here? So yeah, I don't know. I would, I would definitely not be a, a teacher and everything, if it weren't for, for Sam kind of, you know, initially pushing me off on the path. So, and I, yeah, he, the way he communicates is is very approachable from a, a Western perspective and, and yeah, rationality isn't a, some sort of bad word or something like that. So I, I always appreciate his perspectives as well.
0: Yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that's another new announcement. One of the new things I'm doing with my copious spare time now that I'm not doing two or three podcasts uh, <laughs> a week.
1: <laughs> so salty gem is gonna turn into enlightened gem now. <laughs> aum. Aum. I think I don't know
0: where aum is. Like that's Hindu, isn't
1: it? Um, yeah, um it's it's everywhere. Yeah. It, it, oh, okay. It's all over the place. It, uh,
0: you can see me do it, attempting to do a lotus position. No, I don't think so.
1: <laughs> yeah, lotus. Oof, yeah. Not meant for the Western body. Uh, if yeah, especially
0: not fat old dudes like myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, With man. bad joints. Yeah, well, skinny dudes like myself uh, don't do the Lotus either, so don't feel bad. <laughs> All right, that's a good thing to hear.
0: That's a good thing to hear.
1: Well, yeah, I don't know if I had anything else on my list. This was a fun fun little meander uh, through the, the past and, and future of the podcast. Anything, anything left uh, that, you, that you wanted to kind of cover before we, we, we wrap up here? And-
0: no, not really. I think we did hit everything and you know, had fun. And I want to thank you for suggesting this. This was actually a great idea. And uh, I've enjoyed doing it, and I will continue to enjoy working with you. Uh, you've been a very important part of the podcast. It would not be nearly as good without you know, both your technical work as an audio editor, also just as a, a collaborator and a comrade and a, a person to run ideas by. And you know, we just had, a, just had a really good experience working together for the last year and a half or so. It's yeah. almost two years now.
1: It is. It is. Likewise. Yeah, I, I love... I've loved working on the podcast and, and you were you were kind of my the, the landing pad out of corporate America for me. So also just like very pivotal at, at me learning how to be more self-sufficient and, you know, have a bunch of other projects happening and everything. But it was all built on the foundation of, of, of Jim Rutt's show. So a lot of gratitude and, yeah, excited to see how things continue to evolve.
0: All righty. Why don't we wrap her there?
1: All right. Take care.
0: production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com